Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Jane Harrison is an Indigenous Australian writer and playwright, a descendant of the Murawari people of New South Wales from the area around Burke and Brewarrina. Harrison grew up in the Victorian Dandenongs with her mother and sister, and she began her career as an advertising copywriter before beginning work as a writer with the Elbidgery Theatre Company. In the late 1990s, Harrison was commissioned by Elbidgery to write Stolen, about the Stolen Generations. The play premiered in 1998 and was followed by seven annual seasons in Melbourne, plus extensive national and international tours. The play we're here to talk about today, Rainbow's End, was also produced by Ilbidgeri in 2005 and has just recently been included in the New South Wales syllabus for HSC students. Set in the 1950s on the fringe of a country town, Rainbow's End is a thought-provoking, often hilarious and emotionally powerful snapshot of a Koori family. Nandir, her daughter Gladys, and Gladys's daughter Dolly. It dramatises their struggle for decent housing, meaningful education, jobs and community acceptance. And amidst that drama, Rainbow's End shows us that the definition of a hero has a very broad scope indeed. Jane, thank you for talking to me about Rainbow's End. So tell me exactly how Rainbow's End came to be and what your motivations were for creating the story. It was a commission from Orbitary Theatre Company and they wanted to write six plays, each on a decade of different Victorian Aboriginal history. So I grabbed the 1950s. Their brief to us was to write about that decade and to write about the heroes. There's some fascinating Aboriginal men in particular who uh, were doing great things. But I was also really interested in when the men were often out doing public works of good and raising awareness of the big causes, the women, on the other hand, who didn't have access to social security benefits and a lot of the things like that, often were living in quiet fringe situations and struggling, but were working, working hard to put food on the family's tables and keeping the families together. And so, in a way, as a bit of a feminist, they were my heroes. And I'm interested to hear about the research that you did for the play. It's set in the 1950s and it has a few real-life incidences mm -hmm. in it, including a visit from Queen Elizabeth in 1954 and the birth of the Rumbalara housing estate in 1958. Sure. You've been quoted as saying that it's a little bit of a peephole into that era, but I think it's more than that mm -hmm. because there's a great amount of historical accuracy and detail woven into the script. There's mm -hmm. tons of examples but the pick -a box quiz show sure. comes to mind or the inspector's visit to the family home mm. and then keeping aeroplane jelly cool <laughs> in the river because there's no electricity in the humpy and Dolly's dress for the Marupna Shepparton ball. Tell me how you went about building a whole world of period detail. Sure. My research sort of fell into a few categories. So there's a, a keeping place up at Shepparton that had every newspaper article from that era um, pasted into a giant scrapbook wow. and I read every single article about that era. 
So a lot of, you know, that second-hand research um, through newspaper articles and things like that about the era. I read things like the McLean Report, which was a report into um, what had happened. Someone had written to the Herald Sun newspaper or whatever the equivalent was in the 1950s, complaining about the sanitation arrangements around the Shepparton area and saying it wasn't fit for people to live there. So the government appointed a retired magistrate, Charles McLean, to go and visit um, that area, area and write a report. And it was he was very sympathetic to the plight of Aboriginal people, but as a result of his report, I believe, the police went in and removed a number of children. And this actually happens in the play. Yes, the inspector yes. arrives and then Dolly comments mm, that one of yes. her aunts, I think it's Esther, is yeah. down drinking at the cork trees because That's they've right. taken her kids from her. That's right, yes. So there were those kind of real-life scenarios. The family, however, is entirely fictional. So I invented those characters to sort of carry us, you know, this fictional storyline. But I also went to Rumbalara Elders' Luncheon and talked to a number of the elders who grew up in that era on the flats and uh, was very fortunate to speak to people like Auntie Irene and a few others. So things like little snippets in the play, things like the inspector saying, your whites are so white and you do that with river water, was actually a real-life quote that someone had shared with me. And although I was born in the 60s and so my mother came from an earlier era, my mother grew up in Outback you know, Australia, um, with her mother who was English and Aboriginal father. And I remember my mother telling me about uh, her mother making beautiful crocheted pillow shams for the, the pillows, even though my mother grew up in a house with dirt floors. So a lot of that sort of pride in your environment and even though you had, you know, very minimum but there was a lot of pride and looking after your household and their kind of joy at finding good lino at the, the local tip, that kind of thing. Partly comes from my some of my mother's stories as well, but so, also speaking to the locals who grew up in that era. So you really immersed yourself in yeah, that part of history, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I also did things like I went to the National Film and Sound Archives and I listened to all of those pick-a-box recordings. Oh, and that must so, have been a lot of fun. <laughs> it was. It was absolutely fantastic. But so some of the pick-a-box examples I refer to are verbatim. So I actually heard the pick-a-box examples, the things like the, um, the black eye, and then I wrote the story around that verbatim um, excerpt. Well, let's talk about the characters, <laughs> starting with Nandir. What are the most important things that we should know about her? You know, she's had a tough life. And again, I was um, struck by the people I did talk to around the Shepparton era who talked about uh, that overwhelming sense of community that they had around the flats, the sing-alongs, the music, the fundraising to build the housing, you know, their sense of connectedness and that they'd help each other out. And she's very closely interwoven with the rest of the community, she isn't is. she? She knows everyone's business. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying that Nandir has obviously had quite a difficult life. Mm -hmm. Before she moved to the flats between Shepparton and Morobna, she was living in Kamaragunja, 
She clearly doesn't like to remember the old days, though, and she quickly changes her subjects yeah. whenever it's mentioned or she turns inward and starts to talk more so to herself. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to leave Kamarugunja. They forced mm-hmm. us to leave, she says, forced us to leave our home. Mm-hmm. And clearly her experiences have etched a way of thinking about herself and the world into her mind and onto her soul. But there's one moment where she talks about the old days openly, when Gladys gets riled up about Hessian being erected yeah. along the Queen's travel route to shield her eyes from the humpies on the flats. Nandir says, Gladys, get off your high horse. At least here we do things our way. No one breathing down our necks. For Nandir, it seems just being left alone is progress mm. enough from the old days. But I wonder, is she so scarred by the past that she won't allow herself to imagine a life where equality is possible? Or is she just too tired to fight? She's not too tired to fight because I think the fight that she has is on a daily basis and it's about getting food on the table for her family and getting, um, keeping the family together. Right. So that's her fight and I think she's, she'll fight to the bitter end for that. So I think the thing with, again, uh, speaking to people who grew up around that era and around that area, they often mentioned that the elders didn't talk to the younger ones about those kind of major concerns. It wasn't considered children's business. So they were protected from a lot of that. And they remember the fun and the sense of community and the sense of celebration growing up in the flats. And they were protected a lot from the realities, the harsh realities of the, you know, the struggle, the daily struggle. So I think it's not that she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it to Dolly because she wants Dolly to be a a bit protected from those harsh realities. Although, um, you know, they can't help but um, bubble up to the surface in terms of thinking of Dolly's potential career, you know, working in the laundry of the hospital. Those kind of career aspirations are not great. They're, you know, what would be expected of Aboriginal people living on the flats. Yeah, and when Dolly imagines winning a mink stole on Pika Box <laughs> and suggests that Gladys go on the show to try her hand at winning, Nandir says, not going to happen, not in my lifetime. But Dolly says, quite rightly, I bet there's a lot of things that you couldn't have imagined, Nan. Bodgies and widgies, canned food. <laughs> How important do you think it is that she protected Dolly, did that allow Dolly and Gladys, I would think, to really have a sense of hope that they might not have had otherwise? Yeah, I think it's it's also to do with personality. Um, I, I like Nan. <laughs> she's an old, <laughs> she's an old curmudgeon, hmm. and you know, manipulative. How she manipulates Dolly not to go to the ball with. Errol, those kind of things, but she's all heart. Oh, know. very well intentioned, though, isn't she? She is. <laughs> she is. She has everyone's she, best interests yes, at heart. Of course, she does, and she just wants to protect those people. You know, she she doesn't want them to have aspirations or um, high hopes for the future because the, for her, the reality is that um, living on the the mission. Um, mission manager was very racist towards the Aboriginal people and so they left the mission and so um, she's very grounded I think in um, what's expected of Aboriginal people in that time frame. Gladys is probably a little bit less grounded she's very (laughs) straight up and down but tell us what the most important things are that we should know about Gladys. 
oh, she is a dreamer. She is. And I suppose that, again, with that um, 50s love story kind of flavour to the play, really, that, you know, of course she thinks her daughter is a princess, so she wants the best for Dolly and has very high expectations. She sees life through rose-coloured glasses. She doesn't, she doesn't want racism to stop her or her daughter achieving and I think she grows in confidence as the play goes on as well. I think in the end her fight is for others' rights but as the play progresses she begins to take on her own causes such as becoming literate. Well, I think that's all connected to her dreams, actually. And she certainly has the most dream sequences, entertaining fantasies that skirt along the edges of possibility, like going on pick-a-box or presenting a bouquet of flowers to Queen Elizabeth. But she also hopes for a life for Dolly where she can expect to be treated fairly, equally, and with respect. Yes. I want what any mother, black, white, or brindle, wants for her daughter. That's all. Mm-hmm. How do you see all of these dreams being connected? I think, you know, some of the dreams are flights of fantasy in the beginning. You know, the, the pick-a-box, the mink stole, well, that was Dolly's kind of throwaway line, really. Um, but I think they do become more political, in a sense, as the play goes on. The fact that she does present the petition at the end of the play and that she's learnt to, to read. Um, again, in speaking to some of the elders of that era... They talked about the fact that when they were on the mission, they had a very good teacher and most of them were literate. But during the war years and after they'd moved off um, Kamakanja, um, that education fell away and a lot of them didn't get the chance to um, learn how to read and write. So there, was a, there seemed to be a bit of a generational gap. The elders were quite literate and had been well-schooled and then there was this gap of people who did a lot towards the war effort and knitted and things like that, but actually missed out on a formal education. So I wanted Gladys to reflect that. And her openness and her ability to be connected to dreams, I would say, allows the dreams to build in the way that they do throughout the play and develop mm-hmm. into this kind of political activism that yep. you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. Clearly Gladys is an intelligent woman. She knows all of the answers on Pick-A-Box and much, much more. But just as interesting to me, she asks Errol to help her learn to read and write, not Dolly or Nandir. Why doesn't she ask her relations for help? I think they do have a special understanding, those two characters. And maybe it's maybe it's part of Gladys' shame um, that she's illiterate. Her mother obviously isn't and her daughter isn't. Um, and she buys encyclopedias for her daughter. Uh, she sees the importance of education. But they do have that special relationship and I think she trusts him to be able to assist her in that way without having to kind of expose herself to the shame within her own family. You know, they all make a big effort to hide her illiteracy, things like the broken glasses and things like that. They've all learnt to deal with it and work around it in a way. So I think she turns externally to sort of break that pattern. And I suppose it also means that she can actually do it sort of privately as well and learn at her own pace rather than having a bit of pressure, I suppose. And look within families, you know, mother-daughter relationships are always tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Daughter-mother relationships (laughs) are tricky. And so Gladys is stuck in the middle of these two, you know, feisty characters in a way. So 
I think um, Errol respects her and it's probably easier for her. Well, she has so much courage already. I mean, going into the bank to get Dolly an interview and holding her own mm. and not not allowing him to shuffle her out yes. and discount her. Yes. But she finds strength and courage on a completely different plane and level that really takes her to a, another mm. dimension almost yes. when she learns how to read and sure. write, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. Well, I think that's about her own personal empowerment. The rest of the time it's been on behalf of others. So she'll fight on behalf of someone like Dolly or she'll fight on behalf of the community in terms of the community housing when she goes into the local council meeting. But she needs to learn to fight for herself and her her personal rights, which I think she does in the play. Well, let's talk about Dolly. What are the most important things that we should know about her? <laughs> well, she's young. She's young in a way. She has been protected. But she's still got the street smarts. I mean, she does know about the fact that uh, a white boy coming into town, um, coming into the... Uh, the flats is unusual and that a relationship's unlikely to eventually eventuate between them. So she's streetwise and she's learnt from these two wonderful women. Yeah, well, we watch her become a woman on stage, mm-hmm. really, yeah. and her progress is hard fought at times. She endures bigotry and judgment. It's also full of possibility and hope, though, learning French verbs, experiencing first love, and, as Gladys says, knowing that the world is bigger than the flats. But it takes a really sharp and horrifying turn when Dolly is raped, and we come to learn that Nandir was also raped, that Papa Deer is not Gladys's father, and we must accept that this particular form of violence against women was all too common, and mm-hmm. it still is, but... I have to ask why you chose to take the story in this direction in light of the play's overall sense of optimism. Mm. I've got to reflect that at times I question whether I should be writing about those issues, particularly in the light of Dolly being raped by uh, Aboriginal cousin. So I think that's a really difficult area area. for for me as an Aboriginal writer to write about and I I did get criticised about it within my own community about those kind of aspects. I think there's been a there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that's happened and a lot of lateral violence that we enact upon one another and it was quite a difficult decision to sort of write about that that uh, incident or you know to bring that incident into the play. And even my own mother questioned me about whether whether I should uh, write about that. But if you're writing, say, about a a rape that took place at a university campus between two white characters, as a a white university student, you don't think they're writing about me, you know? But the problem with writing about Aboriginal people is there's so few plays, books, films, whatever, that every character... It is in a sense, in a sense, an archetype, and it has to represent the hopes, dreams, and visions of all Aboriginal people. So that seems it's a very... bit unfair for one writer <laughs> to take on board, doesn't it? Well, it, you know, it, it, it's a challenge, and I think some people have broken through that. Important, though, I would have thought to actually confront something head on and to try and mm. do so through stories. Yeah. I would imagine would allow people to access it in a way that isn't 
cold, I suppose, yeah. isn't just a yeah. kind of series of facts and statistics one yeah. after the other. You're trying to narrativize it to give it some kind of humanity and warmth Abs- and to show there's complexity there. Complexity. Hopefully that's what you try and do. That's what I try and do. Yeah. Well, for whatever it's worth, <laughs> I think there's an immense amount of positivity in the play, but you don't shy away from reality either. It's mm. not saccharine mm. positivity. And then we have Errol. <laughs> what are the most important things that we should know about Errol? The fact that a non-Aboriginal man could look at this Aboriginal young girl and see her beauty, her grace, her, you know, just as a beautiful young woman she was. And I know a lot of non-Aboriginal men who in fact did that, that they adored their Aboriginal women, and why not? So, you know, um, that's what I wanted to reflect. Um, Again, I'd had a little bit of criticism about the Errol character as being this kind of white knight who, you know, rides into town on his Malvern Star bike and rescues her, and I think really she's the one rescuing him. Well, yeah, I would kind of argue the same in lots of ways. I mean, in lots of ways, he's adorably clueless, actually. Mm -hmm. He's so in love with Dolly that he can't understand why she would be concerned about going to a dance with him in town. Dolly says, I'm from the flats, not even one of those towny types of crossover Aboriginals. Mm -hmm. And in Errol's reply, we see a young man whose love is completely blind. What matters is you, he says, Mm -hmm. not your address. But in a way, your address does matter because he tries to convince her to run away with him Mm. to the city where they can find a sweet little flat with a balcony and a sitting room and a kitchen with a real stove and a newfangled kelvinator and water on tap because she quote deserves better how did errol develop these conflicting views well in a sense i think that's a a kind of metaphor for for (laughs) white Australia and Aboriginal Australia. You know, Errol comes from that nuclear family and the word nuclear, you know, (laughs) it's not a very positive word, you know. Um, (laughs) And I think his his family situation's a little bit cold and it's formal, it's it's not embracing, it's not everyone looking after, looking out for one another. And I think he sees the beauty in in her family life, but still has this view this sort of paternalistic view that what the white way of life is a better way of life well it's a more materially sound way of life it's a question of values really mm. and when he asks dolly are you really saying that you'd rather live in a humpy by the river when i'm promising you the world she says your world and you're just assuming that yours is better yeah and i think that's a question for all of us i think you know we're Today, we're a very consumeristic um, society. You know, we've, they're the things we kind of value. And to move back to a more relational sort of way of, you know, more value in that. We'll get to that. I <laughs> want to talk about Papa Deer because I think his absence is a kind of presence, actually. He's clearly a very important figure in the family and broader community. Nan Deer tells us that he's on a mission to make things better for the Aboriginal people. He even met with the Queen during her visit. So give me some more details about what he's doing exactly on these travels around All Australia. Right, okay. Well, I very loosely based Papa Deer on Pastor Doug Nichols who was an incredibly inspirational Aboriginal man and who did do a lot of touring around um, 
doing church work, preaching in the Aboriginal community, but also he was a um, he was a um, ambassador really for Aboriginal people in spreading the word about conditions. And he became the governor of South Australia, and indeed. There's a little personal connection to um, Pastor Doug in that my mother, who was a nurse, ended up nursing him when he was in a nursing home in his very late years. And she said all the nurses loved him and would fight over the right to be his nurse on, on the shift. So, and I do know relatives of Pastor Doug Nichols um, as well. But, you know, again, such a inspirational but very humble man. But I was very interested in in uh, characters or people, real people like Pastor Doug who went, were going out doing public work in terms of raising awareness of the circumstances of Aborig Aboriginal people while the women in a way had to do that day-to-day -day kind of work of putting food on the table, keeping the family together and things like that. So he is a significant presence in their life but they do have to fend for themselves. There's safety in their family unit when there's not much of a safety net around them, really. I mean, there's a safety net of the extended community within the flats, and I think that was, you know, the, the people I know who lived there talked about that, how people would look after one another and all, were always sharing. And I think non-Aboriginal Australia still got a way to um, go in, accept, in seeing the beauty of Aboriginal culture, like the healthy, the healthy Aboriginal family and community and the laughter and the joy and all those really great qualities and I don't want to be utopian about it but a healthy, happy Aboriginal family is a beautiful thing and you know, it'd be nice if we just moved back a bit towards those kind of values. So the Deers endure a great amount of judgement and mistreatment from the broader community, whether it be the inspector preaching about assimilation with patriarchal arrogance, the bank manager patronising Gladys when she organises an interview for Dolly, um, Nandir and Gladys always being served last at the butcher, Nancy Woolthorpe shaming Dolly at the Marupna Shepparton Ball, or the townsfolk crossing to the other side of the street as if Aboriginals were lepers. And I wonder, how do you think family bonds protect the women's spirit from these arrows of bigotry? Yes. I think also in the playing of those characters, uh, obviously Errol is played... Um, there's the actor who plays Errol plays those multiple characters. And in every production of the play, I've been impressed with the subtleties around that too because I didn't want... Each of those, I mean, in some ways, those characters are a bit of a stereotype. So I loved when the, the performers did them that they put some subtlety in there. In fact, the bank manager is quite kind in the end. He's mm -hmm. just ignorant. So I didn't want it to be, they're all racist. Um, you know, I just, even though they are short little characters, they can't be fleshed out completely. It was important to have a bit of subtlety there. But... You know, it's true that particularly in that era, I think Aboriginal people were the subject of racism. You know, my mother's stories growing up brought that home to me. I mean, as a lighter-skinned Aboriginal person, I don't cop the direct racism that a lot of my, you know, friends do. Um, but it still goes on today, unfortunately. But 
you know, I have done a lot of work outside of my playwriting around social and emotional well-being and resilience, and I know it's really important that um, if you're a young person, one of the ways you're protected from things like racism is if there are adults looking after you, looking out for you. And often it's about an adult outside of the family, but in this case, in a play, we're showing just how that family bond, that family structure supports um, the resilience and the well-being. Jane, thank you so much for sitting down to talk to me today. <laughs> Pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.